0: <laughs> all right, looks like everyone's making their way back to their seats. Hope you had a good fellowship time. Well, good morning to all. A warm welcome, especially if it's your first time with us. So we especially welcome you. And for myself, as they've mentioned, this is my last time, my last Friday with you for now. And uh, as Brother Robert reminded me this week, the best kind of goodbyes are bittersweet. Uh, I'll surely miss you, but going to good things as well. Well, over the summer, we have been doing a sermon series on the grand story of scripture, going from Genesis all the way to Revelation, through the whole Bible. And we've likened understanding the Bible to building a puzzle. And what we've tried to do is, at a high level, build the outline of the puzzle. And we've got pretty far. We started up here, and we just have one corner piece left, the piece that we'll cover today, but everything else has been built. And where we started on this uh, first slide, if you can jump there, is that back in Genesis 1 and 2, we saw that in the story of scripture, the setting of the story is heaven and earth. We saw that the main character, or the hero of the story, is God himself, and his desire is that his image bearers would rule the world on his behalf. We saw that in early chapters of Genesis. And just like any story, any movie or novel you might read, the hero's desire is blocked by a problem. In the case of the Bible, the problem is that humanity, the image bearers, gave their rule over to the serpent. And the serpent is one who is diametrically opposed to God. So he's the bad guy, he's the antagonist in the story. And we saw that the first piece of our puzzle was Genesis 3.15, which promised that a seed of the woman would strike the serpent's head, thus restoring the rule of the world back to God's image bearers. That verse also points out that there are two teams on this story. There are the seed of the woman, in the plural sense, and that's everyone who shares the desire of the woman for the promised seed to strike the serpent. And then there are the the serpent seed in the plural sense. and We're not looking for baby snakes here. We're talking about all the rest of humanity who is aligned with the serpent against the purposes of God. And we might say that Genesis 3.15 is the solution to the problem. God promises that the, the promised seed will strike the serpent. That's the solution, but how specifically does God work this out? And we're gonna have a bit of a longer introduction today because I've got to review everything we've done to get to the point where we can get to the end of the story. So we followed the promise down to a man named Abraham. And God made a covenant with Abraham which promised land, seed, and blessing. And We saw how this covenant is irrevocable and eternal. God won't change his mind, God won't cancel it, he will fulfill it. And We saw that even until today, this covenant has never been fulfilled. And we saw that each of these three elements was then amplified further by other covenants. So the land promise was amplified by the land covenant of Deuteronomy 29 and 30. And that promised that Israel, even though they would not be able to fulfill the Mosaic law, and as punishment, they would be scattered among all the nations of the world, God would bring them back into the land and give it to them as an eternal possession. The seed promise of the abrahamic covenant was then amplified by the davidic covenant where god promised david that a descendant of his would be an eternal person who reigns eternally on david's throne over an eternal kingdom likewise these are eternal and irrevocable covenants that were still waiting to be fulfilled and lastly we saw the new covenant which promised a wide range of physical and political and spiritual and religious and national promises for Israel. And it amplifies the blessing aspect of the Abrahamic covenant. And so all these covenants are there and we're in this state of anticipation, waiting for them to be fulfilled. Well, we moved on from the covenants to look at the book of Daniel, which is really the backbone of Bible prophecy. And in a dream by King Nebuchadnezzar, there was a picture of a metallic statue, which basically described that since there's no longer an Israelite king on the earth, representing the kingdom of God, there would be a series of kingdoms in what Jesus called the times of the Gentiles. And these kingdoms would go from Babylon, to Medo-Persia, to Greece, to Rome. And later on, there would be this reconstituted Roman Empire something deriving out of the cultural inheritance of Rome and we saw that that would be the Antichrist kingdom which is yet future to our day and we saw that at the end of that kingdom a stone from heaven would strike the statue fill the earth as a great mountain and we said that the striking stone is Christ himself And at that time, when he destroys every vestige of the Gentile kingdoms, then the kingdom of God fills the world. And so the Old Testament came to a close with all kinds of promises. These Genesis 3.15 promise, unfulfilled. These four covenants, unfulfilled. This promise of a coming kingdom of God, unfulfilled. And so there was Israel waiting, waiting, waiting. 400 years of prophetic silence where God did not speak. Well then, John the Baptist came. Jesus came, and we looked one day at the book of Matthew, which explains that the, I'm sorry, let me let me do this. Uh, this is a, a good point. What we saw is that the kingdom of God has a definition, and it has a timing. We saw that the kingdom of God is not just spiritual, but also political and physical. We saw that it comes after the destruction of the antichrist kingdom, so that's its timing. And at that time, it would be inherited by, given to, the saints of God. And we saw that while the church and the kingdom of God surely have a relationship, they are not synonymous. So they're not the same thing. And then when we move to Matthew, we find out what exactly happened to the kingdom? Jesus came and said, the kingdom of God is at hand, which means he was offering the kingdom. It is yours should you choose to accept it. And yet the nation Israel rejected the king and the kingdom. And so Matthew explains that because of that rejection, the kingdom was postponed to a future generation and that there would be this intervening period of time which we call the church age. But someday the church age will come to an end. And last week we looked at the great tribulation, which follows the church age. This is seven years where we have uh, what we looked at last week with three heavenly events. We saw the rapture of the church, judgment seat of Christ, and the marriage supper of the Lamb. And while those great things are happening in heaven, on earth all hell was breaking loose. As the judgments of God, the wrath of the Lamb is poured out upon the non-believing world. We saw how the Antichrist would rise to power and tyrannically rule the world. And we also saw how there would be a great spiritual revival during that time. Many would come to faith in Jesus. But it seems that most of them, the vast majority, would be slaughtered by the Antichrist. And so that's where we've been so far. Now we have to finish the story. And if we think back to Genesis 3, you know, what has the serpent's goal always been? Well, the serpent has desired to rule the world and to be worshiped as God. In fact, in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 3 and 4, Paul will talk of the Antichrist and call him the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction who will take his seat in the temple of God and display himself. As God. And that's exactly what Revelation 13, verses 3 and 4, is describing, where it says, The whole world, the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshipped the dragon, that's Satan, and they worshipped the beast. That's his image bearer, the Antichrist. And so, you see, Satan always tries to counterfeit what God does. If God wants his image bearers to rule the world, Satan wants his image bearers to rule the world. That's the antichrist. And so it seems like in this tribulation period, the serpent actually achieves his goal. There he is, he has his image bearer in the temple of God, being worshiped as God by God's chosen people, the Jews. So it almost seems like he's one. But as the Jews bow down and worship, They think that the Antichrist is their Messiah. They think that he is their God. Things change. And this is what some have called the greatest double-cross in all history. And the Antichrist will turn against the Jews and attempt to totally annihilate them, wipe them off the planet. And as things get more and more climactic in the tribulation, in the final days, there will be this great climactic battle called the Battle of Armageddon. And it's happening in the land of Israel. And so, Antichrist and his armies are in the north and they're working their way south to Jerusalem. And they're killing and slaughtering and destroying everything in their path. And as they get to Jerusalem, and, and the battle seems to be at its fiercest, it seems like all hope is lost. And it seems like Antichrist and the serpent have won the day. Just then, Revelation 19. Go ahead. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Revelation 19. Just a few pages from the end. Revelation 19, verse 11. Let me read this for us. So, this in the midst of this great battle, this is what happens. Verse 11. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In the midst of this great battle, heaven opens and the Lord Jesus appears with the armies of heaven. That's the church. The resurrected church that is coming back to earth with him. In verse 17 and 18, an angel will call all the birds to come to Israel to prepare for a great feast. Verse 19, and I saw the beast, that's the antichrist, and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in his presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast. And those who had worshipped its image; these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulphur. And the rest of the slain, uh, the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. So, in the midst of this great climactic battle, the Lord Jesus comes back with the armies of heaven, and it seems that. All he does is speak, and the armies drop dead. They don't have a chance. There's no chance. He takes care of the Antichrist and the false prophet, uh, the beast and, and the false prophet, sends them to the lake of fire, and then he takes care of their armies. So really, the empire of the Antichrist comes to a close very, very rapidly. And we might say this is synonymous to Daniel chapter two, where the stone comes from heaven and strikes the statue. This is that, very time. And now for Satan, chapter 20, verse one. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. At last, the promise of Genesis 3, striking the serpent, restoring the rule of the world back to the image bearer of God, happens. Satan is put out of commission. he is thrown into the abyss and presumably, uh, along with all the other fallen angels, and all the demons, Uh, It doesn't say that in the text, but I think it's a reasonable inference that we can make. And the rule of the world goes back to God's image bearers. Verse 4, we have it on the slide. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them. Judgment was given to them. Who is the they in this verse? And as we trace back, we have to go a really long way back to chapter 19, verse 14 the armies of heaven, who earlier in chapter 19 are identified as the bride of Christ, in other words, the church. So tracing back who it is, it is the church, the the resurrected saints who will sit on thrones with Christ ruling the world. So continuing in verse four, also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God And those who had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now this uh, this part of the verse is talking about the tribulation saints, those who became believers in the seven years of tribulation, but were then slaughtered by the Antichrist. And it seems that his preferred method of execution will be beheading, chopping off people's heads. Verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So at long last, God's intention, right from Genesis 1, that his image bearers rule the world, come to pass, and there will be this thousand year period. Now, what what do we do with this thousand years? Many Christians do not accept this as a literal period of time. I do, I I see it mentioned here six times in chapter 20. And in the book of Revelation, John knows how to use numbers. We see him using larger numbers, smaller numbers. He knows how to say a short time or a long time, indefinite period of time. And there's no indication in the text that he is allegorizing that he's trying to be symbolic about something and so i think the best option here is that a thousand years simply means a thousand years brilliant right and this is what we frequently call the millennial kingdom millennial kingdom the thousand millennium the millennial kingdom and i think throughout scripture we have these terms kingdom of god kingdom of heaven the kingdom age the millennial kingdom i think 95% of the time these are synonymous almost always these are referring to the millennial kingdom when christ rules the world in fact 24% of the old testament is talking about this millennial kingdom it's all over the place all over the scriptures it's also what we pray for if you think of the lord's prayer After worshiping the Father, the first clause says, Thy kingdom come. What are we praying for? We're saying, Lord Jesus, come back to earth. Establish your kingdom here on earth. In the big picture of the whole narrative of scripture then, this millennial kingdom is the resolution of the entire story. This is where God's desire is at last fulfilled. This is where the Abrahamic, land, Davidic, and new covenants all get fulfilled. It's where the kingdom described in Daniel gets fulfilled. So we might ask, well, this sounds great. Who is going to be in this kingdom? Well, we'll have the resurrected saints of the Old Testament. So everyone who is a believer from the time of Adam and Eve until the time of Christ, they will be resurrected brought into the kingdom. We of course have the church age saints from the the time of Acts chapter two until whenever the rapture happens, we will be raptured to heaven and come back with Christ in our resurrection bodies. And we also have those believers who came to faith during the seven years of tribulation and died. Uh, They will be resurrected as well and brought into the kingdom. But also, among those tribulation saints, there will be a small percentage of them who survive to the end of the seven years. And they will enter the kingdom in their mortal bodies. They will marry, they will have children, they will repopulate the world. And so initially, because all the non-believers would be slaughtered when Christ comes back, initially, it's all believers in the kingdom. But as children are born, as the world gets repopulated, they will be sinful human beings as well. And they will have to come to faith just as every other saint has through all the ages. What about where? Where is this kingdom? You know, we might be tempted to think we're talking about heaven or earth, someplace up there. Actually, this is on this earth. It's on this earth, the new heaven and new earth don't arrive until after the thousand years in chapter 21 of Revelation. And so it's a good reminder for us that as believers, our hope is not to die and have our disembodied spirit go to heaven. That's not our eternal destiny. We are waiting and longing for resurrection life on this earth. Well, another question. What will it be like in the kingdom? What will it be like? And we have four categories here, political, religious, ecological, and biological. And I'll just give you a sampling of verses from each of these. Uh, There are tons and tons of places we could go. Uh, It's a lengthy study to look at this, but I'll just give you a few examples. So first of all, political. Isaiah 2, verses 2 to 4. Now it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and it will be raised above the hills. It seems that Jerusalem will become this great mountain on the earth, and it will be the center point of importance and divine government on the earth. And all the nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So all the nations will be streaming to Jerusalem. And elsewhere we find that they must travel there at least once a year, or there will be consequences for that. Continuing on, he says, And he, the Lord, will judge between the nations. He will render decisions for many peoples. Wouldn't that be nice? If every international dispute, instead of going before the... Useless, I mean the United Nations, would be mediated by the Lord Jesus Christ. Nation will not lift up sword against nation. Never again will they learn war. Worldwide peace. Every dispute mediated by Jesus. Zechariah 14.9, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be the only one and his name, the only one. So he's it. Jesus is it. There's no dispute who is the ruler of the world. Or Isaiah nine, verses six and seven. For a child is born to us, a son will be given to us. Now, Usually we hear this verse around Christmas time, don't we? But let's keep reading. The government will rest on his shoulders. When did that happen at Christ's first coming? It didn't. It's waiting for his second coming. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Why Prince of Peace? Because there's no more war. It'll be wonderful. It'll be wonderful. So to summarize the political realities of the kingdom, Christ will be the king of the earth. The government will be just and righteous. Won't well, that be a nice change. There will be universal peace, no need for military, no need for all the money wasted spent on militaries around the world. And there will be swift judgment for the wicked. Christ will rule with a rod of iron. Those who are foolish enough to openly rebel will be immediately dealt with. Let's move on to the religious aspects of the kingdom. What will the religious side be like? Habakkuk 2.14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Everyone will know who God is. They'll know it's Jesus. They'll know he I mean he'll be there bodily in Jerusalem, physically there. They'll be able to go see him, talk with him, worship him. Everyone will know. Also, there will be no false religion. We saw in Revelation 20 how Satan will be thrown into the abyss and his primary work of propagating deception and false religion around the world, that will come to a stop. So there will be only one religion on the world during the kingdom, and that's faith in Jesus Christ. Now there will still be non-believers, but those who rebel openly, they will suffer death. They will be executed. And so probably many of the rebels will keep their rebellion hidden in their hearts. And on the outside, they will go along with everything just to survive. So if we can summarize the religious side. Oh, I forgot the Millennial Temple. That's pretty important. In Ezekiel 40 to 48, Ezekiel will talk about this massive new temple that will be built in Jerusalem. There will be a new priesthood, and that is where the Lord Jesus will have his divine Seat of authority, the throne of David in this, this magnificent new temple. So, there will be the millennial temple, extensive knowledge of God, Satan will be bound, there will be no false religion on the earth. I can't wait. I can't wait. I hope as we go through these that you're starting to get excited about the kingdom. I know I love this topic so, so much. Well, let's move on to the ecological reality. Amos 9.13 says this, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper, and the one who treads grapes will overtake him who sows the seed. Now, for those of us not farmers, what's happening here, he's saying one guy is throwing seeds in the ground, and right behind him is the guy collecting the, the fruit, as if he throws it in the ground, it grows up so fast, and then it just pops off the trees and they collect it. But then this guy behind him, he overtakes the guy who's sowing. Now, I think it's a little bit hyperbolic here. It's a little bit cartoonish. But the picture Amos is painting for us is that the earth will be extremely fertile. The harvest will be rich. There will be no famine in this time. And actually, uh, as the verse continues on, it says, The mountains will drip sweet wine, and all the hills will flow with it. This picture of grapes and the grape juice just flowing down the mountains, a beautiful picture commonly used in the Old Testament prophets to describe the kingdom age. And In fact there's a connection there to communion which we'll talk about later as we partake this morning. In Ezekiel 47 out of this millennial temple there's a river that will flow all the way down to the Dead Sea and what Ezekiel sees in his vision, is the Dead Sea coming to life. That every single sea animal that is found in the Mediterranean will be found in the Dead Sea. Fishermen will be casting nets. And all along this river, trees will be sprouting. And and it's wonderful, this water of life that brings the Dead Sea to life. I don't think they'll call it the Dead Sea anymore. (laughs) Likewise, on the land, Isaiah 35, Isaiah says that that the desert will blossom like the rose. Or similarly, Ezekiel 36 verse 35, the land that was laid waste has become like the Garden of Eden. Imagine driving out into the desert of Kuwait and you can see how barren it is. Just imagine, that will become like the Garden of Eden. It's glorious, beautiful. So the earth will have this remarkable and abundant productivity. You know, Paul writes in Romans 8 that creation is groaning, waiting for its redemption, waiting for release from the curse which God placed upon the ground in Genesis 3. And it's at this time in the millennial kingdom that God will remove that curse from the earth. To summarize these ecological realities, the curse will be gone from the earth, the desert will become like Eden, the Dead Sea will come to life, and there will be an abundance of plant and animal life. Speaking of animals, let's talk about the biological aspects of the kingdom. Isaiah 11, verses six to eight says, and the wolf will dwell with the lamb. Now think about that. If, if today you put a wolf and a lamb together, one of them is gonna have lamb chops for dinner, right? And it's not the lamb. And the leopard will lie down with the young goat. Likewise, that would be their natural prey in the current time. The lion and the calf together, and a little child will lead them. So parents in the kingdom, the little three-year-old will come, mommy, daddy, look at my new pet lion. We're gonna go play in the field. Okay, have fun. And it's not gonna be a problem. They won't attack, they won't be violent. So there will be this massive change in the animal kingdom. It seems the animals will no longer eat meat. Uh, It says in that same passage that the lion will eat straw like the ox. A remarkable change in animal life. What about human life? Isaiah 65 verse 20 says this, never again will there be an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at 100 will be thought a mere child. Wow. You now, I have a grandmother who recently celebrated her 95th birthday. She is very, very old by our standards. And yet, in the kingdom, if someone dies at 100, they'll say, wow, what a tragedy. Such a young person died. But they had their whole life ahead of them. <laughs> so sad. Speaking of the women, Isaiah 65, 23, they will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. So there will be this massive population explosion. When you think of the conditions, there's no war, there's no disease, there's no famine, there's no animals to attack you and kill you. There's an abundance of harvest, life is long, death is rare. We're talking about ideal conditions for human flourishing in every single aspect. And so I hope these realities of the kingdom have generated some excitement uh, about this future that we have. I mean, it's not only a paradise, but it's what God has always intended from the beginning. And this kingdom is really that final puzzle piece that we've been waiting for. It's the fulfillment of all of God's promises through the ages. And if you are a believer, you're gonna be there, right? The church will be there. You'll have your resurrected body. You will be ruling and reigning with Christ. We will also have a priestly ministry. We will be teaching people about God, about the mortals who are born and who still need to come to faith. And our level of authority, our level of responsibility in the kingdom depends upon our faithfulness now in this life. So knowing that that is part of our future, that should be an incredible motivation for us to live with holiness, for us to care about the things of God, for us to contribute eagerly to the edification of the church, to evangelism, to to the things of God, because it will pay off for us in the kingdom. There are great rewards coming. After the millennium, back in Revelation chapter 20, I'll just summarize this for us. Satan will be released from the abyss. And he will deceive the nations and a multitude, amazingly, of all these hidden rebels. They will come against the Lord Jesus as if they can possibly defeat him. But all that happens is fire comes down from heaven and destroys them. And I think that God allows Satan's be released there, because he wants to show how wicked the human heart is. That even when you have God Almighty ruling the world, and everybody knows it's him, and you have perfect conditions, and Satan isn't there, I mean, you can't say the devil made me do it, you can't say I'm a product of my bad environment, it's just the sinfulness of the human heart. And it will show that his judgment of those rebels is just because given the chance, they will try to kill God. Revelation 21, 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth have passed away and the sea was no more. Continuing down in verse four, he will wipe away, uh, speaking of God, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away." John will go on in chapter 21 and 22 to describe this magnificent New Jerusalem, the capital city of God's eternal kingdom. He will describe the river of the water of life. He will describe the tree of life, which we lost access to back in Genesis 3, but regained in Revelation 21 and 22. So we might say that the the millennial kingdom, the first thousand years, is the opening phase of God's eternal kingdom. But it's not quite the same thing. You know, a lot of people confuse or kind of mix together Revelation 20 with 21 and 22. Uh, but actually, there are some differences. If we jump here, just to show a few, in the millennial kingdom, we have both glorified and mortal humans, but on the new earth it will only be the glorified, resurrected people. The millennial kingdom will see sin and death, although death will be rare, it exists, but there's no sin, there's no death on the new earth. In the kingdom, salvation is needed for the mortals, but in the new heaven and earth, salvation is accomplished. Everything that by faith we are hoping for will no longer be a hope. It will be sight. Our faith will be sight. The millennial kingdom takes place on this present earth, but the new heaven and new earth is something new, as the name suggests. Also, the temple in the millennial kingdom is in Jerusalem, but in Revelation 21, it will say there is no temple, because God himself is the temple. We also see in the millennium that there are sun, moon, and stars, but new heaven, new earth, they're not there. God himself is the light, all the light that we need. And lastly, the duration. Of course, the millennium lasts for a thousand years, while the new heaven and earth will last forever. It's God's eternal kingdom. It's wonderful. Let me close off with a couple of verses. Revelation 21.8 says this. Very sad verse. But as for the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral persons, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Tragic, tragic verse. But notice that unbelief is on this list. So even if you're not abominable, if you're not a murderer, if you're not a sorcerer, if you're none of those things, but you don't have faith in God's Messiah, that is sufficient grounds to condemn you to the lake of fire. It should be really sobering. Unbelief is enough for the lake of fire. But right by the end of the Bible, uh, almost the last verse, there's only a couple of verses after 22 verse 17. Here's an offer of God. Right at the close of his revelation to mankind, it says this, Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without cost. Right to the end of the scriptures, there's a God who is reaching out to humanity, offering his mercy. It is free. His mercy is free, but you must ask for it if you have never placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've never come to God on His terms, here's how you do it. You believe that the Lord Jesus is the God-man, that He was crucified, that He was buried, resurrected on the third day, and that that action, His sacrifice, was sufficient for my penalty, your penalty for sin. And if we believe that, God promises he will grant us eternal life. He will grant us resurrection life in the kingdom that we've just been talking about. So if you've never done that, or maybe you have questions about that, feel free to speak with me after the service. I would be very happy to talk with you about that. So that's the story. That's the story. If you're wondering what is the story in the Bible in a couple of quick sentences. Everything was great. And then Genesis 3. We live in a broken world. We all recognize that. But God is going to make all things new. And part of making all things new means judging everything that is against God. But those who come to God on his terms, by faith, will be in the new creation. And he will restore and have such a glorious future. It's amazing. So that's the story, that is the final piece of the puzzle. Well, let's move, let's transition now to communion. Now communion is only for, yeah, if you wanna come up. That's great. Uh, Communion is for baptized believers in Jesus Christ. So if you're not a believer, please, Please limit your participation to to observation only. So feel free to watch what we're doing, listen to what we're saying, but this would not be for you. This is only for the believers. The first time that communion appears in the New Testament is Luke chapter 22. Talking about the bread, it says this, when he, Jesus, had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you, do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, uh, talking about the cup, we to the next slide. When he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it amongst yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine, in other words, grapes, from now on, until the kingdom of God comes. And this is that connection back to Amos 9, verse 13 that the sign of the messianic age, the sign of the kingdom, would be an abundance of grape juice, of wine. And Jesus was saying, he's connecting communion and the cup, not only to his blood, although it is that, but also looking ahead to the fact that we are celebrating, there's a kingdom coming. And as we drink of it, we're reminding one another, we will be in that kingdom with the Lord. So at this time, we invite you to stand and we have the elements over on the table here. So please collect for yourself and uh, we'll be back in a minute.